This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by MLB.com national content editor Matt Myers. On today's show, we're going to talk about how the A's have won 11 in a row, figure out what's going on with the Yankees, wonder if maybe it's time to trade Max Scherzer, get into Dodgers, Padres, and an interesting fact about Trevor's story. But before we get started, I wanted to relate a brief personal story. I have not been inside a bar in more than a year for, you know, reasons, but there's a local bar down the street that I really like and that I want to support. So every once in a while, I'll go and get, you know, drinks and bar pies uh, to go. And I did that on Sunday, and this is in the middle of the Mets-Rockies game when Jake DeGrom was in the middle of striking out nine Rockies, and they almost didn't win, and then they kind of came back at the end. And anyway, I'm standing there waiting for my order, and the game is on, and I I strike up some small talk with the bartender and uh, one of the guys who was sitting at the bar, and it was great. Baseball talk with strangers. How much do I miss this? Anyway, the guy, the random guy sitting at the bar started talking about the uh, Ronald Acuna play where he had, you know, hustled down the line and beat out the throw from Didi Gregorius. And it was such a cool play. And then out of nowhere, and he had no idea who I was. And he said, hey, I saw he ran like 31.2 feet per second. That's amazing. And it filled my heart with joy. And I laughed and I laughed. And I, I did not tell him who I was or where I worked. But man, do I miss bars and people and people in bars talking about baseball. Hi, Matt. <laughs> Hi, Mike. That's a good story. Um, I appreciated it. It's nice. It's nice to have that kind of... Uh, some 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 baseball banter. Um, obviously, I like talking baseball. People that I talk baseball with all the time, such as yourself. But it is also nice to have some different perspectives. Yeah. Hey, did you notice yesterday the A's won again? Or <laughs> I guess depending on your perspective, the Twins lost again because that's like a whole other thing. It, it kind of pained me um, because, as uh, listeners know, Luis Arise is one of my favorite players in baseball. So for him to make one of two consecutive errors that cost the uh, Twins the game was uh, was tough. But man, the A's. Can we talk about yesterday's game before we get into the larger context of the A's? So the A's have won 11 straight and yesterday's game. So it's Thursday morning for us. Yesterday was the Wednesday afternoon game. The A's were up 7-4 in the third inning. They gave up six runs to be down to the Twins 10-7. Uh, in the sixth, and then they tied it on the sacrifice fly in the ninth. So we're tied going into the 10th inning. Byron Buxton hits a two-run homer, and man, we cannot talk enough about how great Byron Buxton has been. But it was it was an interesting decision, right? So you start with the runner on second base. It should have been Josh Donaldson. Uh, Rocco Baldelli pinch ran for him with Travis Blankenhorn, who was playing his second major league game, which I was fine with, by the way. Donaldson has had a ton of calf issues. He's not really someone you want running the bases if you don't have to be. And what happened though is so Donaldson's out. Luis Arise has to move from second to third, and Blankenhorn goes to second. And then in the bottom of the tenth inning, realized the A's score had zero hits, did not have a hit. Fly out to center, strike out, walk, walk, easy ground ball to second base, like the easiest, and Blankenhorn can't handle it. And then a ground ball to third. And I got to say, there's not really a good way of of tracking like 
worst throws I've ever seen. <laughs> but oh my God, Luis Arias' throw was not even close. And I saw, I can't remember who it was. I think I want to say it was Trevor Plouffe, who, you know, former major league infielder, where he's like, you know, I've played in Oakland and that the foul territory there is so big that it just feels like the first baseman is a million miles away, which I, I think I can see that. And it's not like Arias is an experienced third baseman, but Oh my God, how do you lose a game on back-to-back errors allowing no hits? <laughs> Plouffe's comment is interesting. It kind of reminds me of like what you hear in like the NCAA tournament where they play games in like football arenas. There's it's a, such a different backdrop for shooting that you often hear like shooters talk about how like it's really hard because you're used to like people in a background being much closer to the back of the basket, whereas in this case it's like miles away. And I could it never really occurred to me how in Oakland that might be different, how like your perspective when you're throwing around the across the diamond, because the fans are so far behind the first baseman. It's a different a little bit of a different challenge. And then of course, you know, once you overthrow it, like it just rolls for miles. Like two runs we're gonna score. <laughs> it's not like one of the one of these new ballparks where like it goes past the first baseman, but the stands are like 10 feet behind. So it just bounces right back to him. It was like, nope, there's that's the game. I know we're supposed to be talking about the A's, but the Twins had gotten swept in a doubleheader the day before, and they hadn't played for a couple of days because they got all sorts of COVID issues, and it is just not a great time to be a Minnesota Twin right now. But anyway, the A's, right, started out 0-6, uh, split their next two. They've now won 11 straight. Over the season, they've actually still been outscored by two runs, which I find kind of funny, but over the 11-game winning streak, they have scored 71 games, runs, excuse me, and allowed 33. I'm going to say that's not sustainable. I'm going to say um, they're not the best team in baseball. Over the streak, they have the best offense in baseball. Unsurprisingly, they have the fifth lowest ERA. Have you looked at their infield? I find their infield fascinating, right? Matt Olson is crushing it. He's been great. You know, OPS over 1,000. He's a very good first baseman defensively. I'm, I'm glad to see him back to form. Matt Chapman's been kind of like, okay, not actually that great, kind of below average. And then they have the weirdest middle infield I think I can think of, right? Jed Lowry exists again, and he's hitting well. He's hitting 323, 400, 516. This is the same Jed Lowry who basically like fell into the Springfield mystery zone for the last <laughs> two years. And Elvis Andrus, who they who they traded because they let Marcus Simeon go and never really got a shortstop, so they traded Chris Davis for him, has been awful. Like an OPS plus, where again, 100 is average, 17. That's bad. I, I'm not even he wasn't good in Texas. So I'm not actually sure how much like positive, you know, regression I expect from him. What a weird infield this is. I kind of love it. <laughs> I mean, there, was there anything more predictable than Jed Lowry <laughs> going back to the A's and like picking up like where, where he left off? Um, because it seemed pretty obvious to any, any Mets fan who's been paying attention for the last 20 years that that's exactly what was going to happen. I didn't expect him to be this good. The other play on the A's that I find fascinating. Um, and I think it's kind of gone under the radar is like, a pretty good player for a few years now is, and I never know how to pronounce his last name, is is Mark Canna. Is it Canna or Kana? Yes. Either way, he's just like been a consistently pretty good hitter now for like four years, um, and he's playing very well again. Um, and he also is one of the best bat flippers in baseball, so that's also something that he's got going for him. He's hitting 261, 414, 449 with three homers and four steals. He's not young. He was just sort of like a late bloomer. So it was just like one of those guys. It's just like, oh, this is like a classic A's guy. Like, Mark, you know, he's 32 years old. And it's like, oh, he just like emerged in his late 20s as like a good player and has stuck around and helped them win for the last few seasons. Do you know who got the win in the game yesterday? He threw one pitch. Do you know who it is? No. I, I obviously do not care who actually got the win, but I just wanted to point out that I noticed him. Diola Scarra 
Do you remember Dio Lascara? Do I remember Dio Lascara? He was yes. He was, he was originally signed by the Mets, and he was in the Johan Santana he, trade. He was in the Johan Santana trade, which was like 13 years ago, and I didn't realize he was still playing professional baseball. I guess he was on the Phillies for like a minute last year. Uh, he got the win. He's back in pitching, which is like neither here nor there. It just was like a weird thing that stuck with he, me. He was like a big. He was a big bone, like a big bonus guy. Um, yeah, you know, and it was he was one of the like the, the centerpieces of that trade when it happened. He was like still a teenager at the time. And now that I'm thinking about the Oakland bullpen, I remember, you know, when they got off to that terrible start, the thing that really stuck with me was that uh, Trevor Rosenthal, who was like their big offseason addition, had thoracic outlet surgery and is either not going to pitch for most or all of the season. And when you start off 0-6 and you lose that guy who was supposed to replace Liam Hendricks, you're like, ooh, that's not going to go well. You know who's been fantastic? Lou Trevino, who had that like breakout three years ago, I guess, and then has been only okay since. He looks amazing so far. I'm not sure I trust the rotation. I've never been that high on Sean Manaya or Chris Bassett, but I do remember when I picked them to finish third, every A's fan on Twitter was like, you know, they've won like at a 600 pace for each of the last three seasons, right? When it, When is everybody going to stop underrating us? And so far, not feeling great about that. Actually feeling pretty bad about it. <laughs> well, I think, I think two weeks ago on this podcast, I made the point and I said, if you want some good news, A's fans, there are three teams in history that have started 0-6 that went on to make the playoffs. And at the time, I was sort of like, yeah, you know, I mean, I wasn't ruling them out, but I I was an A skeptic myself, um, although they always constantly surprise us. So right now, they're looking like they could be very well be the, be the fourth team because the AL West is a mess. You look at the uh, the A's are now in first at 12-7. and seven. The Astros have lost 9 of 10 <laughs> and are now... Seven and ten. There's only one team in the division with a positive run differential. The Angels, who are plus two, so um, it is a wide open division. Uh, it's I don't really know what to make of it. Um, I don't think this is sustainable for the Mariners. I picked the Angels preseason, so I guess I'll stick with that. If you're the A's, if anything else, you got to feel good about just the Astros hitting such a big skid right at the time that they're resurging because now it's like okay, it's like after all. We're, we're 20 games in, basically, and it's like, okay, we're basically leveled off. An early season Seattle run that I don't believe in? Why, I can't remember any such seasons like that. I agree with you. Uh, the Astros are better than they've shown. I don't believe in Texas at all. I'm kind of shocked they're almost 500. But, yeah, good start for the A's. How about the Yankees, who are on a 57 win pace? And I don't know if I can think of a more stunning fact in all of Major League Baseball right now than that the 334 slugging percentage by literally the Yankees is the worst in baseball. The Yankees, they are built to slug. 21st in hard hit rate, they have the third lowest line drive percentage. And I know what I'm about to do is super unfair, but I'm going to do it anyway. I looked up over the last 100 years, the worst offensive performance by the Yankees in the in March and April by OPS, um, seventh worst. And if you look at the team's Above, below, however you want to look at it, 1968, literally the year of the pitcher, you know, 66 and 64 and 72, like that, that whole span of Yankee Dem was not a great spot for them. And now you have this year's team. And I was reading one of the Yankee blogs this morning, views from 314 feet, and I cannot believe this fact, but it is true. The only home run they've hit against a pitch faster than 95 this year is from Kyle Higashioka. What is happening right now? How is that real? I don't really know. I mean, what I'll say is like, you know, it's it's common to sort of like, you know, it's it's, it's the Yankees, so people are going to freak out no matter what. Um, I'm not necessarily 
as concerned as the greater like baseball Twitterverse. Um, but there's two, two points I have about the Yankees, which is like I think they'll probably be fine and turn it around. It's more just like some of it's about um, their a little bit about their identity, I guess. And I'll kind of this kind of goes into my second point of like a couple of years ago it looked like there was this like ascendant core of young guys. And I was like, Ooh, this is like going to be like a fun, this next generation is going to be like a fun Yankee team. You know, we have uh Glaber Torres, we've got Clint Frazier, we've got Gary Sanchez and Aaron judge. And then like, it hasn't really materialized. Like judge has basically leveled off as like good player who walks a lot and hits massive home runs, but like not necessarily a superstar. And then you've got, Frazier's been a huge disappointment this year. And then you've got Gleyber Torres, who's like, I really don't know what to make of that guy. Because I'll be honest, like, I expected him to have a big year. Anyone, like, I, I, the, I, in my fantasy baseball league, I aggressively tried to trade for him before the season started um, because I thought he was going to have a good year. But when I've looked under the hood a little bit um, about his performance the last couple of years, I'm not really sure that was warranted on my part because even in his like 2019 like breakout year his like underlying metrics were not all that great his like expected weight on base was basically middle of the road um and it's been pretty consistently middle of the road for like that's like the kind of the good news if you're the if you're a Yankee fan is like he's been pretty consistently middle of the road of like oh an expected weight on base of like 330 every year of his career um but that's also not that good well, I, I disagree with you slightly. I think you're underselling Judge slightly. I mean, he's hitting 50% better than average this year, and he's a good defensive outfielder. I think he is a superstar. But I, I agree with you on Torres. I especially agree with you on what you said about his 2019, because even at the time, you know, he's hitting 38 bombs. It, it seemed to me like his bat was getting a little overrated. Like, I still thought he'd be pretty good, you know, better than what he is now. But it's quickly becoming clear. That's maybe not the right way to say it. It's long been clear that he is not capable of playing shortstop at the major league level. And they've sort of their roster construction is such that they're a little bit painted into a corner because they went out and got LeMahieu back. But I, I think you could still go get a shortstop and move towards the second because it's like LeMahieu can play first, second and third. Voight's not healthy. It's not really the end of the world if Gio Urshela plays like four or five days a week instead of seven. Like I think those problems sort themselves out. And I know you don't see these kinds of trades in April, but maybe you need to. Maybe, you know, we'll talk about Trevor Story in a minute. Maybe it's Javi Baez. I don't know who it's going to be, but they cannot let Torres play shortstop that much longer. And the other thing is, and I hate I hate to even talk about this, but it's like the thing right now. So last night in the game against Atlanta, I think it was the seventh inning, uh, he had like a checked swing and it was maybe unclear if it was fair or foul, but he did not put that much effort into running the first base. And everybody's losing their mind over that. And I'm I'm kind of on two minds about this. The first thing is that um, I don't care that much. I've never cared that much about these things. There's like a 1% chance he was going to get a hit. And we've seen guys, you know, injure themselves, like going full speed on these nothing plays. I generally don't care. I think it's like a, a silly thing to, to focus on in the greater context of everything looking bad. The only thing I will say, though, is that there's a little bit of read the room in here to me, like at this particular point in time where the team looks like they have forgotten how to play baseball and you're not performing, maybe not the best time to have that look. Like I, I at least accept that, but generally I hate these stories. And and to be totally honest, because we've seen this before, it always sucks when it's uh, positioned against the Latino players, right? That always seems to be what happens. Like Sanchez is up to, and I, and I, I hate that. Yeah, that's well said. Like just sort of like it's in this moment, it's the optics of it in this moment. If the Yankees were playing well and he was hitting well, 
no one would have thought twice about it. It's just like at this moment. The one other point I want to make about Torres, which I think is is interesting, is it? I forgot who said this to me. I, was, I think it was one of one of our colleagues said this to me when talking about Torres recently. He's like, I've never been sold on. Like I'm not. He's like something to the effect of, I'm not sure Glaber, Glaber Torres is more than just like a ridiculous hot streak against the Orioles two years ago, right? So I went and looked into this, and. If you recall, Glaber Torres was ridiculous against the Orioles in 2019. Now, yes, it counts. They are on the schedule. They are a team, so I don't want to completely dismiss it. However, the 2019 Orioles were one of maybe the worst team in baseball and one of the worst teams in recent history. Um, and so, like, maybe stats do need to be taken a little bit with a grain of salt. So in 2019, Torres' overall line was 278, 337, 535 with 38 home runs. If you did take away his games against the Orioles, where he hit 13 home runs in 18 games, his stat line becomes 263, 312, 465, which is good for a middle infielder, but it's not a star. So it's like, again, the games count, but I do think that it got me thinking about like, how much do we like count or discount certain performances? I always go back to like, you know, similarly, like, the 98 Yankees against like the expansion devil rays, you know, they were like, I think they were like 13 and one or 12 and zero or something against them and outscored them by like 50 runs. And if you look at like Pedro, you know, peak Pedro Martinez, um, what he did against the devil rays who were in that division, it's like comical. And it's like, it sort of feels a little bit like that where like, you do need to take it with a grain of salt because the Orioles were so bad and it might've actually altered our perception of Glaber Torres as a player. What I mostly remember about that stretch is Gary Thorne, who was the Baltimore play-by-play guy at the time, his his soul slowly leaving his body every time he had to call a Claire Torres home run. <laughs> There's some amazing clips out there of him just like absolutely losing it. The last thing I want to say about the Yankees is a positive thing. The bullpen has actually been fantastic. It's been by several different metrics, uh, the best in baseball. Araldis Chapman looks unbelievably good. He has faced 19 batters and he has struck out 13 of them. Johnny Losaiga has been good. Chad Green has been good. Luis Sessa has been very good. Um, that is a it's like a bright sign, which is great because really the only starting pitcher who's been that good is Garrett Cole, who looks fantastic. Uh, nobody else does. But I, I can say this. I'm not a Yankees fan, but Matt and I do both live in New York. And so we kind of see a lot of this. Yankee fans are absolutely losing their minds right now. It's April 22nd. They're calling for Aaron Boone to be fired. They're calling for Brian Cashman to be fired. They all want to know what would happen if the zombie ghost of George Steinbrenner was still alive. I kind of want to know what he would do too. But um, I think we're in agreement that this team is flawed yet considerably better than this. And when they go off and win like, you know, 14 of 16 in the middle of June, we'll look back on this and laugh. Is that fair? (laughs) Yes, I'll I'll have more on this topic in my purpose pitch to close the show. Very good. Well, let's take a quick break and we will come back and get to our three batter minimum. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually we just brush it off or blame ourselves saying things like, I lost my mojo. Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. 
The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com MLB. GetRoman.com MLB. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We are in our three batter minimum where we have three interesting topics of the week. I'm going to just briefly touch on one that I just saw tweeted, which is not great news. Uh, the Pirates, this is Rob Beer Temple of The Athletic. The Pirates say Cabrian Hayes re-aggravated his left wrist injury last night while taking high velocity swings off a pitching machine. It happened on the same type of swing as before. He will now see a wrist specialist. I can only say, oh, no. Oh, no. Um, he was so impressive, and the Pirates badly needed him. That's not great. I'm deeply disappointed about that, and I'm not sure what else can be said about that. Too, too, too many injuries to like exciting young players this week. It's been a bit of a bummer. Not great. All right, here's our first topic. When, or if, or to whom, I suppose, should, should the Nationals start thinking about trading Max Scherzer? I know it seems wild to even consider it, um, but I know that before the season... We both voiced some pretty considerable concerns about the Nationals. I, As I've said a couple of times, I, I wanted to pick them fifth, but I couldn't do it because I thought Juan Soto would have like one of the greatest years ever. And if you're going to be that good, then you're probably going to finish ahead of the Marlins. Well, so far, not great. Nationals are seven and nine. Juan Soto is injured. Steven Strasburg is injured. Patrick Corbin is he was okay in his last start. But before that, he'd looked terrible. Um, the lineup we expected to only really have like two good hitters and that's more or less what's happened i guess josh harrison's been fine i could not be more down on the nationals i think they will be out of the race by i don't know june 1st and if that happens well suddenly you've got a future hall of fame pitcher in max scherzer who still looks pretty good in the final year of his contract he has full no trade rights so he can say no he can say i don't want to go here or there there's like a lot of complicating factors to this but man if you are a team like i don't know the Yankees or anybody else who needs a top level starter, you can't do better than Max Scherzer. Yeah, it's uh, it's a I think it's a it's a really interesting topic for the year. As you noted, the Nationals are really off to a rough start. They have the worst run differential in the National League. And yes, run differential this early, like one blowout can kind of skew it. So I don't want to read too much into it, but they also are in last place right now and it's a flawed team. Scherzer, however, looks quite good. His velocity is I don't even want to say down a tick, maybe half a tick. Um, but he's been thrown. He's his fastball has been about nine, a little under ninety four, which is basically what it's been. You know, it's been hovering around ninety four for the last few seasons. So that's like kind of who he is now. The off speed stuff still looks really good, and I think he's going to be the name this year at the at the trade deadline. Just kind of the way the things are going. Yeah, there's some other interesting free agents, right? Like, yeah, it's possible that if the Cubs fell out of it, like Anthony Rizzo becomes a trade candidate. But like, how much in a first baseman? at the trade deadline is never going to be like, you know, a, a difference making like piece, right? You know, whereas like a pitcher, like every start down the stretch has like an added impact, not to mention the postseason, if you can get there. And like, wouldn't you want Max Scherzer in your rotation come the postseason? The interesting thing more for the, from a pitcher standpoint, is like every start 
has so much more value. So it's like, how early are you willing to start shopping him? Is the question. That's to me. It's like because like I remember like the famous example I think of was like when the Indians traded CC Sabathia to the Brewers in the summer of two thousand eight. I want to say, and it was like it was. In, I think they did it in June, and it was like okay because like they were like, well, we're out of it, and like we can give you you know four extra starts, and that has a ton of value to you. And I feel like the same thing could be in play here. So Mark Feinstein wrote about this uh, at the site at LMB.com, and you should go check it out. He named five fits. Four of them I am in complete agreement with him on. One of them I'm not, and I think he missed one um, particularly notable team. So he mentioned the Yankees, and I think that just makes a ton of sense, right? Scherzer and Cole, that would be great. He mentioned the Angels, which I think makes a ton of sense. Can you imagine Scherzer leading a rotation with like Dylan Bundy, uh, Otani, and you know ahead of Trout and everything? That would be fun. He mentioned the A's, which I think is really interesting because the A's never can sign players like this, but if they can get a guy like that for two months, I love it. And he mentioned the Cardinals, which I think makes sense too. Obviously, Scherzer is from the area. Um, the Cardinals could use a guy like that in the rotation. The one team that uh, Feinstein mentioned that I don't totally agree with is the Giants, just because I know they're off to a good start and I've, I've said a lot of positive things about the Giants all winter. That does not seem like their style. Like I think I think the people running the Giants are wise enough to know they're not catching the Dodgers. You know, like they're gonna they're not gonna like go nuts to try to stay in the race when all of their rotation guys are free agents and they're probably end up trading them. Here's the theme I would have mentioned: um, the Blue Jays. Right? I know that they're not off to like the greatest start in the world, but you look at their rotation. Hyunjin Ryu is great. Uh, I have a lot of questions behind him. We, we've talked a lot about the weakness in that rotation. So if you can go out and you can add Scherzer to that team, I think that would be really interesting. I'm not sure any of this is likely to happen. He might not want to go anywhere, but it sure is fun to think about. Yeah, he might not go anywhere. The, you know, the, the Nationals might just feel like we want to keep him around because our fans love him. And even if we're out of him, we want like, you know, fans still might want to see him make 10 more starts in our uniform. And like the way the game has changed is that teams are less likely to, to, to trade difference making prospects for, you know, quote unquote rentals. And so there is a world in which like the Nationals are like, you know what, this guy is such a part of like our identity for the last, you know, seven years or whatever. Like we're just going to keep him around. The fans will be happy to see him make a few more starts at our home park. And and, and that's that. But when you think of difference makers that could be available at the deadline, he's like, to me, like number one by far. I'm wondering if all of those things you just said, like all of the reasons for him not to be traded, I'm wondering if we had or would have said those things about Justin Verlander in Detroit a couple of years ago, you know, former teammates, obviously, and ended up getting traded to Houston and winning a World Series. True. The, diff- the difference, though, is Verlander was not a rental. So there was like a feeling like, oh, we actually could get like we could, you know, there's there's a lot more we can get in a, in a trade for him. That's true. And in retrospect, that trade has worked out terribly for Detroit. <laughs> None of those guys. It was Jake Rogers and Daz Cameron and uh, the pitchers Perez, I think was his name, like. None of those guys have done anything, really. So I don't know if that's a lesson. But number two, our second item here, the Dodgers and the Padres are going to play starting tonight. Um, last weekend was maybe the most fun baseball series I've seen in years. Uh, I guess I have to point out here that on Sunday night, if you're watching the game, please turn to ESPN2. We are doing a special StatCast broadcast. Myself, Jason Benetti. Eduardo Perez. It's not just about stats. We are going to have so much fun because the Dodgers and the Padres to me are the best rivalry in baseball right now. Matt, I would I would ask you to pick your favorite moment of the series from last week, but I'm not sure I could pick one because there are too many. <laughs> um, I mean, the it's probably the Mookie Betts catch just because that was just like such a cool way to uh, to end a game, right? That's just like that's it's hard to beat that. So I think that I'd have to go with that. 
Yeah, and it was cool because um, it's one of those moments where it's like it looked great, and then the numbers backed it up too. It had a a ten percent catch probability based on the distance and time and direction that Mookie had to go. So nine times out of ten, you don't make that catch. And not only does he do it, he does it to end the game, to save the game. And then he comes up like you know screaming and beating his chest. And it's like this iconic moment. And every baseball fan I know is like, this is great. I want all of this. What I'm kind of surprised to point out, though, is that the Padres are only 10 and 10. And I sort of thought maybe they could hang with the Dodgers. Um, they're, they've not been as like dominant as I thought. Like their plate discipline has been great, but they're like bottom three in slugging. You know, they're just they're not pounding the ball as much as I thought they would. And I'm not entirely sure why that is. I mean, you know, Tatis has been injured and hasn't done much. Machado has been great. Uh, are you surprised by their offense so far? Um, I guess maybe a little bit. It's it's just so hard to judge. Um, it's so hard to judge Tatis right now because he had the shoulder injury. You know, from my amateur, you know, medical standpoint, I was shocked at how quickly he came back. Just like you know, when you think of like shoulder injuries to hitters and like the way he looked when he went down, I was surprised. Of course, was it his first game back or second game back where he hit one out to dead center off like a ninety-seven mile an hour fastball? I was like, okay, like that's good. Um, his overall numbers have not been great, but actually the batted ball stats are, I think, probably mildly encouraging. At least, and they're like they're like fine. They're not, I was worried. I went to look this morning to double check, and I was worried it was going to be like really ugly. But he's he's been you know been able to hit the ball hard and turn on some 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 good velocity. So I'm actually fairly optimistic um, about uh, about him kind of getting it going. Although he is striking out a lot, which is something to to to, um, to, to keep an eye on. There was definitely hope that Tommy Pham would maybe turn around. He's really been – that just seems like maybe that's just not going to happen at this point, that you know that that magical season he had, which is now probably like four years ago, is just a thing of the past. So I, there's some reason for optimism with the offense just because I think Tatis will get it going. But um, I, I, you heard me on the podcast early on, like in preseason. I didn't expect them to hang with the Dodgers. I still think they're going to be right in the thick of the wild card race though. Yeah, I was, I was going to say Tommy Pham does not look good. He's hitting 153-301. 169 wasn't that good last year either he's kind of pounding everything into the ground like he's still drawing a walk but i'm i'm not super optimistic about him rebounding it is kind of nice to see will myers crushing the ball again like he was one of the more pleasant surprises of last year i think and uh you know he's out here slugging over 500 and so is uh trent grisham we should probably at least mention how amazingly good joe musgrove has looked and i know everybody's like oh it's another pirates guy who left and you know blew up and like that is somewhat unfair, I think, because he was really good last year, too. You know, <laughs> it's not like he came to the Padres. And it's true, he's throwing, he's throwing his cutter more, he's throwing his four-seamer less and all. But um, he was pretty good with the Pod- with the Pirates last year, too. I'm trying to come up with something positive for Pirates fans after saying that Cabrian Hayes is injured again. Cause- yeah. Phil- Philip Evans? <laughs> the one thing I'll say about Musgrove is that, like, I think, I mean, that's been a huge development and just that, like, it papers over a little bit of what's going on with Denilson Lamette, right? Because... I think going into this year that people knew the Padres had some uncertainty in the rotation. It was like, okay, well, we feel good. We obviously feel good about Darvish and Snell. Who's kind of be, who are three, four, five going to be? We think Lamette, we have optimism for Lamette, but you know, he um, last year ended like with an injury this year, he was going to come back and he pitched what two innings yesterday and had to be taken out of the game. It doesn't look great for the rest of his season um, without knowing, just based, you know, speculating on knowledge of how these things go through baseball history. It doesn't look great. The emergence of Musgrove is like, oh, this guy is legitimately good, at least from a, you know, a perspective of like, you know, it, it stinks that Lamette's not pitching, but like from a perspective of, okay, can we make the, the, the postseason? Musgrove at least gives you some, some, 
some positivity that 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 kind of void is is being filled. Yeah, and on the other side, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the Dodgers are very good. They're on track or on pace right now for 126 wins. That's with almost nothing from Cody Bellinger. That is with uh, time lost to injury from Mookie Betts and Gavin Lux. I'm going to go out on a limb and say I don't think they're going to win 126 games. But it's kind of fun. Like everybody on earth projected them to be the best team in baseball and a historically good team. And so far, it's like, yep, that's that's exactly what's happening. I know they played the Rockies a bunch, but they also beat the Padres two out of three. And if they win this series, I think they're playing four. If they win three out of four, uh, it's off to the races. Like who's going to stop them? They they look almost unbeatable to me. I want to. Did you watch it all? Uh, let's see. Two days ago, I guess they played the day game in Seattle. Did you watch the end of that game at all? When Kenley Jansen pitched? I was not watching the game, but I saw some people uh, tweeting about it. So I saw oh some, my God. Like, like, some like eyes emojis about uh, a couple pitches he threw. Peak Jansen. Like we've, it's kind of funny to think about how long he's been around. He made his debut for the Dodgers in 2010, right? And he's been there for, you know, over a decade now. But for the last couple of years, it hasn't quite seemed the same. And that's mostly because his velocity has dropped. So he throws the cutter. And in 2016, it was a 94 mile an hour pitch. And it slowly went down and down and down. And by last year, it was a 90 mile an hour pitch, 90.9. And, you know, the movement wasn't quite there. And he was still pretty good, right? Like, it's not like he was a, a bad pitcher or anything, but just wasn't quite as dominant. And then in that game against Seattle the other day, the, the movement on that cutter, like the horizontal break looked like peak Kenley Jansen. And he also touched 97 miles an hour, which he had not done since August of 2017. And you're like, where, what, what happened here? Where did that come from? But I found this interesting. So he has pitched in seven games this year. Two of those games came on zero day rest or one day rest. The other five came on two days rest. In the pair of short rest games, 16% strikeout rate. In the five games with two days rest, 50% strikeout rate. He allowed two hits on short rest, which I'm calling, you know, one or zero day, uh, has not yet allowed a hit in the five games on two days rest. And I think the Dodgers know this because if you look at how they've closed out games, you know, he's closed out five games. Um, and Scott Alexander has also closed out five games, not all save situations. You know, sometimes you close out a loss, but David Price was like sort of a closer a little bit there. Victor Gonzalez, Corey Knable, Jimmy Nelson. I think they're going to kind of do this like Jansen when he's available, but maybe less available than the rest of the time. The only problem with this is that this is fine for the regular season when you know you're going to win 178 games. It's tougher in October, right? Like, I know there are days off in October, but there's still a lot of back-to-back games, and you can't exactly say, oh, well, I don't really want to use him in game seven because he pitched yesterday. That I'm not sure how that's going to work. But so far, watching him pitch when he's got extra rest, he looks like peak Jansen, and it's really cool. That's it's interesting to think of like how they could, you know, knowing the Dodgers, they're going to be, you know, putting some some thought into this. But like, if you decided the like the way that some teams in the postseason now treat the third time through the order penalty where they're like we're not going to let our pitchers go a third time through like no matter what and it's almost like be like we know jansen is great so like but only in these situations so we just we're deciding before the series he is going to be the first man out of the bullpen in games one and four and six and we'll let him pitch two innings and that's it that's when he's going to pitch um i don't think that's going to happen but i i'm curious to know if like they sort of figure out some like more defined role um, given what we're starting, the, the pattern we're starting to see with his um, performance. Yeah, I, I do also wonder if at the deadline they try to go get like a pair for him, you know, a, another back end reliever who can kind of help with that. Our third topic here, Trevor Story has not hit a home run yet this year. 
which is weird. Trevor Story is actually not off to a great start, depending on how you look at it. He has a 689 OPS. Uh, he has not hit a home run. And this is a big deal because he is almost certainly in his final year with the Rockies. Feels like he should be traded. Feels like he should have already been traded. But, you know, he needs to have a big year if he wants to uh, go out and get a big free agent contract this year. We are both very high on Trevor Story. I think he's a great hitter. I think he's a very good fielder. Zero home runs. And there's been a stat floating around that I, I kind of wanted to explain for a minute. And that is that if you were to look on his StatCast page at Baseball Spot, you will see he has five expected home runs. What does that mean? Every single batted ball has a trajectory and you can overlay that trajectory on the distance and wall height of every other ballpark and say how many it would have been out at. So it's pretty fun if you look at like, uh, you know, Brett Gardner popping a ball down in the right field in Yankee Stadium and say, yeah, there's no other park in baseball that would have gone out at. It's just a Yankee Stadium home run. Okay. well, the thing about that is that the way it works currently, and it probably will change at some point soon, it only does. Uh, the dimensions, right? It's not attempting to adjust for elevation. And so this hurts Rockies hitters a little bit because they know that the ball flies there. So course field is huge, right? The fences are deep. And so while it's true, like, you know, if he's, if he's hitting some of these balls at home that would have been out in other parks, uh, that doesn't account for the fact it probably just wouldn't have traveled that far. Even so, if you watch some of these, they're really funny. He hit a double at home on April 8th that would have been out in 29 of the other 30 parks. And if you watch it, he hit the top of the left field wall, which is known as the Breidich Barrier. A couple years ago, GM Jeff Breidich wanted the wall raised and he hit the top of that. So that was a barrier to a Rockies home run. Um, on April 3rd, he hit a double at home that would have been out in 28 parks. It hit the top of the wall in the deepest part of center field. So that's how that metric works, but that doesn't change the fact that he actually is like performing pretty well. Um, he's got a 379 slugging percentage, a 549 expected slugging percentage. Barrels are up. Strikeouts are down. Walks are up. Hard hit is up. He's actually been great, but he's got a 689 OPS. It's, <laughs> he, it's weird. <laughs> he, he hit, I, I think I, I slacked you about this over the weekend. He hit one against the Mets, like just a blast to deep right center. And he flipped the bat. Yeah, like he could, he was like, "Oh, this is extra bases, if not a home run." And like, I think Brennan Nimmo was playing like 380 feet away, right, and caught the ball in the gap. But uh, yeah, you could tell that story's been uh, been hitting into some, uh, I guess, for lack of a better word, bad luck. Yeah, and like, I'm still confident in him. This is what I'm trying to say. Is I'm not worried about his slow start, like at all. I think the only if you're the Rockies, you're only concerned if you're thinking of trading him. If like, regardless of how smart front offices get, superficial numbers will still enhance someone's you know perceived value so you know yeah you could try and be like well look he's hitting the ball as hard as ever like you still want to see the results so if it ends up being point that they're gonna want to trade him and they should because the rockies are uh let's see they are now six and 12 mired in last place in a good division and it's seems like the best course of action for them this off this this summer is seeing what they get for trevor story um so from that perspective you'd want to at least see him putting up some some uh superficial stats I saw an article the other day, which I thought was a really interesting concept. The Athletic got their Rockies and Orioles beat writers together to talk about the uh, the impact of the Orioles trading Manny Machado a couple years ago at the deadline, as opposed to before that season or before the previous season. Like, did they wait too long, as it appears the Rockies are doing? Matt, could you tell me off the top of your head any of the names the Orioles got by trading Manny Machado to the Dodgers? Um, I cannot. I remember that there was 
one guy who I think was like a I, I want to say he was like a one like a, one of the Dodgers big uh, signings out of Cuba a year or two yes. before, but I don't think he's really materialized. And I can't you, remember his name. Use Neil Diaz. Um, so they they got five guys. Uh, one of them was just kind of like a, a veteran backup infielder and Bravik Valera, who's kicked around a little bit. And the, the guys have actually turned out like okay. Uh, Dean Kramer is pitching in the Baltimore rotation right now. Zach Pop got picked as a uh, Rule Fiver by Miami, so he's he's pitching. You know, Diaz is still in the minors and he's he's considered a prospect. But the point is, they didn't get that much. Like, there's no game changers there. And I'm really wondering if the Rockies are going to wait until July. Is this going to be their fate as well, or are they not going to trade him at all? I they should have traded him last winter, and I know it would have looked awful, right, to trade both Arenado and Story at the same time. Like that's that's a really bad look. But also, trading Arenado wasn't a great look. So it's like, what what more was there to lose at that point? So like, when when are they going to trade him? Um, I guess this July. I mean, it seems to them. Remember, I mean, didn't the uh, the Padres do that a few years ago when they went all in for that one year, and then the next offseason they traded like you yeah. know Matt Kemp and and. Uh, I forget who else. Joel, um, they, they, uh, Kimbrell, Justin Upton, uh, they got some oh, Shields. Hey, where did Shields go? That one worked out okay. <laughs> and then like the next offseason, they trade all those guys. And the, the Marlins did the same thing a few years ago when they went all in and got like uh, Mark Burley and Han- and they, they brought back. Yeah, that was uh, almost 10 was, years ago at this point. <laughs> Jose Reyes and uh, yeah. someone else. Heath Bell. <laughs> yeah, wow. That was uh, <laughs> That was a minute ago. All right, we are going to take one more quick break, and we will come back and each talk about uh, an interesting player that you need to know more about. My guys, a Marlin, and our purpose pitch. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Matt and I each like to pick a guy each week to focus on, someone who's maybe a little lesser known. And usually I don't pick guys who were the 13th overall pick in the draft just four years ago. But I do feel like Trevor Rogers, Miami left-handed pitcher, importantly, Trevor Rogers, who is not Tyler Rogers and is not Taylor Rogers. He is Trevor Rogers. Um, we should talk about him for a second. By the way, his full name is Trevor Jadaniel Rogers. That's J apostrophe Daniel. And because there is also a Tyler Rogers and a Taylor Rogers, he should be Jadaniel Rogers. That would be way cooler. Anyway, you look at the Miami rotation. We all spent a whole bunch of time talking about all these young guys, Sixto Sanchez, right? Sandy Pop, uh, Sandy Alcantara and Pablo Lopez. And Rogers, I feel kind of got maybe a little bit lost in the mix. He was the, like I said, the 13th overall pick out of a New Mexico high school. Um, a couple of picks before Seattle took Evan White. I saw this story from Craig Mish earlier. 
the uh, the Mariners, the Marlins were set to draft Rodgers in 2017 until their former owner, Jeffrey Loria, ordered their former general manager, Mike Hill, to draft Evan White instead the night before. They talked him out of it. And then everybody who wanted Evan White didn't show up for the draft the next day. Times have changed a little bit. The, the, the new ownership there, the Derek Jeter group, um, seems to be doing a pretty good job of getting this team back into contention. Anyway, last year, Rodgers got into seven starts, 6-11 ERA. Can't say I paid that much attention to him. This year, four starts, 164 ERA, 36% strikeout rate. It's 31 strikeouts in 22 innings. He throws hard. He's got a fastball that is just a tick under 95 miles an hour. And you look at all the left-handed starters who throw a fastball, uh, who have thrown at least 50. Only Jesus Lazardo and Blake Snell throw harder. He's got a changeup that has six inches more drop than other changeups at this velocity. And then this last thing I thought was cool. There is a, a newish stat that the pitcher list guys have come up with that you can find on fan graphs. It's called CSW, called strike plus whiff percentage, which is cool because, you know, a strike is a strike. Whether it's a called strike or a swinging strike, we should we should pay attention to both of them. And if you look at the top 10 names on the list, Trevor Rogers is ninth. The names are amazing, right? Corbin Burns is one. Musgrove, Bieber, DeGrom, right? You want to be on that list, and he is. And I just, it's cool that we're seeing another Marlins starting pitcher, maybe a less heralded one, despite his high draft status, breaking through. And while I still think it's a year too soon, I don't like their offense very much. This rotation is going to be super fun. Trevor Rogers is going to be part of it. Uh, yeah, I, he's he's fun to watch. I'm not sure this is a great comp because he actually relies more on his change than his slider. He gives me some like Patrick Corbin vibes, just maybe just because of like the build and the arm angle, which is like you know a good pitcher to um to sort of be met you know be compared to. I guess I saw him a, a preseason. I saw him, a, one of the Marlins blogs do this where Trevor Rogers actually led the Grapefruit League in strikeouts, which is not necessarily interesting on his own, but he went, they went back and looked at every pitcher who had ever like led the grapefruit lead in strikeouts. And it was like a really good list of pitchers. And it was like, we're not saying this is anything, but this is interesting. And he's, you know, parlayed his, his good spring into a really good start to the season. He, I mean, he just dominated the Orioles the other day. Granted it's, you know, the Orioles are not a great lineup, but it was, it was very impressive. My guy is actually not a no-name guy, but I'm going to go with him because he'd kind of become a no-name guy. (laughs) And it's having a nice little resurgence that, like, I'll admit I had not really noticed until, like, two days ago. And and that's Evan Longoria, who I had basically written off um, after a brutal 2018 season in San Francisco, his first in San Francisco. But he's raking for the Giants this year. And, like, they're having a little bit of, like, an old guy revive, uh, revival. Buster Posey is also hitting the ball really well. And that's a big part of, like, why they're off to a, a surprisingly – Good start. I'd also forgotten that Evan Longoria, when he got to the Giants, they traded for him from the Rays before the 2018 season. Just how bad he was to begin his Giants career, I had no recollection of this. He didn't get a hit in his first four games with the Giants. He started two for 29, two for 25 rather. <laughs> um, he ended up with like a uh, with a, he ended up getting hit by a pitch during the season, which I think and, and missed some time. In that kind of wrist injury, so they think there was some like belief, like oh maybe it was the wrist is why he's had a bad year, but he wasn't hitting with power even before the wrist injury. He's 35 now. I'm not really sure what to make of this, but if you look at like his baseball savant page, he's in like the 90th percentile and better in all the categories you want to be in. And two things that stand out to me, he has three opposite field home runs, three home runs to right field this year already. He had not hit a home run to right field since 2018, which I think is interesting. And his chase rate is way down as is his chase contact rate, which is actually a good thing, right? Because you don't want to be making contact on pitches out of the zone. Uh, I don't know if that's by design or by accident, but it's working out 
in his favor. And it's kind of cool to see him have a nice little, uh, I don't know if it's going to be a good month or a good season, but it's just cool to see. He was at one point, maybe kind of on like a low key hall of fame track. That's not going to happen at this point, but it's still kind of good to see as someone who's kind of followed his, his whole career going back to when he was, you know, uh, a high traffic coming out of long beach state. Yeah. I remember that 2018 giants team where it was like pretty clear to everybody that the glory days were over, but they're like, we're going to find some veterans and try to make this work. So they got Longoria, they got Andrew McCutcheon, they got um, Austin Jackson to play the outfield. And then before spring training was even over, Madison Bumgarner got hit by a line drive and broke his hand or his finger or whatever. And then, you know, most of those guys were gone by the end of that year where they finished uh, fourth. Um, you're right, though, Longoria. It's funny. His last year in Tampa Bay in 2017, he wasn't actually that good either, right? So if you look at 17, 18, 19, and 20 combined, four full seasons, he was below average as a hitter. And I agree with you. I'd, I'd kind of stopped thinking about him in any context really but you're right he's off to a good start and it's cool you know he's he's been one of those guys where you thought for the first couple of years this guy's like going to be one of the best ever third baseman and i don't think that's true anymore but if there's going to be you know the hall of very good as they like to think about it i think evan longoria is going to be in it so I'm, I'm with you on that one matt and i each like to pick a rant for our purpose pitch here's mine on tuesday in anaheim the rangers and the angels were playing and it's the top of the seventh inning. Rangers are batting and they are down by two runs. Okay. So the first batter grounds out. Isaiah Kiner for Lefa triples. The next batter strikes out. So now Joey Gallo comes up. Man on third, two outs, down by two runs. And what does he do? He drops down a perfect bunt. Now, if you look at what the Angels were doing, they were in like the peak Joey Gallo shift, right? The second baseman's all the way out in right field. The third baseman's basically playing like deep behind second base bag. There's almost nobody on the left side, which when you have a runner on third is kind of a weird thing to do because the runner on third, Kiner Falefa, was like 40 feet down the line. So Gallo, remember, there's two outs. This is not a sacrifice bunt situation. This is the Jake Taylor in major league situation. Um, although I guess Willie Mays Hayes was on second, not third. Anyway, the point is he drops down a bunt. There's nobody there. Run scores. He gets the first base. And the reaction to this um, from like, I saw broadcasters and blogs and radio shows were like, yeah, eat it, nerds. He dropped down a bunt. What do you think about that? And I'm thinking to myself, um, great. They they were down by two runs. <laughs> like there's a, a runner on third who's like 40 feet away from home plate. Yes, do do that. I don't need Joey Gallup striking out there or swinging away because, you know, the offense isn't very good. I don't want Joey Gallo bunting when there's nobody on. I want him hitting the ball 700 feet. But when your bunt is not a guaranteed run, obviously, because bunting is hard. But when there's a pretty good chance that you can cut a 3-1 deficit to a 3-2 deficit in the seventh inning. Yes. Great. Wonderful. Why are we yelling at nerds here? I loved it. Joey Gallo is off. I mean, like, he always puts up like weird stat lines, but you know, he's once again putting up just like a crazy weird, like even by his standards, stat line because he's walking like crazy. But I think he's only got one one home run. Um, yeah, he's got one home run. He's hitting 222, 455, 278. 278. That's a slug. <laughs> With one home run and two stolen he has more stolen bases than uh than home runs, which it's Joey Galley always do always doing some something uh interesting. Um, my purpose pitch, my rant for today goes back to our conversation about the Yankees and freaking out about teams having slow starts. Like, it's like we have amnesia. I mean, I say we, I really mean you because I don't freak out about this, but we do this every year. (laughs) 
<laughs> wow. We do this every forget. year. And I just don't pay attention to what you say. <laughs> I'm talking about the, the broader, you know, you, the, all you listeners out there. <laughs> the Yankees are five. They started five and 10, I guess. Now they're six and 11. Like if they had a five and people are like, oh my God, this guy is falling. If they had a five and 10 stretch in June for starters, no one would care. No one would notice. Like you might notice, but no one would care. I'll give you some examples. The 2019 Nationals, who won the World Series, went 5-10 and 10 from April 14th to April 28th. And then they started another worse stretch, going 4-11 and 11 from April 29th to May 14th. They won the World Series. The 2017 Astros went 4-11 and 11 from July 29th to August 13th. The 2015 Royals went 4-11 and 11 from September 4th to September 19th. It goes on and on. You could basically pick any World Series champion and find a 5-10 and 10 or worse stretch. In fact, the 1997 Yankees, who won 96 games and came with, you know, other than like a bizarre random, like Mariano Rivera blown save would have gone to the ALCS started the season five and 10. So people, please, we don't have to do this every year. We can spare ourselves. (laughs) They may not make the playoffs. I'm not guaranteeing it, but like we can't freak out about a five and 10 start. Heck the the, the A's start 0 and 6 and they're already in first place. Why? I think we, we can freak out. That's that's half the point of being a player. I agree with you. Uh, I have two points to make here. First, I know they didn't make your list because they didn't end up winning the World Series, but they reached the World Series. Let us not forget that the 104 win Los Angeles Dodgers of 2017 in like early September lost. I don't remember exactly what it was, like 16 of 17. You remember that where they went on like a three week stretch and won one time? Yes, and I forgot about that. There you go. Another good example. Yes. So the only part of this I disagree with you on is that I don't even think it's about the record for the Yankees and Yankee fans. I think it's about just how bad they've looked doing it. You know, Uh, they have made a lot of defensive mistakes. Like fundamentally, they look bad. They look uninterested in playing the sport of baseball. And I think that's more of it to me. If they're playing well and things just don't go their way, okay, fine. You think like, okay, the ball will bounce our way tomorrow. But the way they're playing, I think that's what it is. I think it's the look more than the outcome there. Does that make sense? Yes, totally. And I think it did go back to a little bit what I was saying before, is that even if they like turn things around, like I think that there was this feeling that like they, as I said, that they had this new group that was going to be the new equivalent of Jeter, Bernie, Posada, like, oh, this new core, homegrown core that's going to be the, the core of this next like, really good Yankees team. And there was like this energy behind it. Whereas like right now, it's still just, it actually sort of feels like one of those kind of like mercenary mid-2000s Yankees teams that was still very good, but just was like, oh, here are just some guys we got from other teams, you know? So it's like, there's still that feeling where I think maybe some of the excitement of this is going to be like a homegrown squad is has been has been lost tied in with as you said kind of like the lack of energy and execution that is fair this will do it for this week's podcast don't miss an episode by subscribing on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts if you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions leave us a rating and a review thanks for listening to the ballpark dimensions podcast see you next week Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with h track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. 
Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 